Well, good morning. Thanks, Ed. It's so good to be here with your church family this morning. If any of you think that your church is the size of the walls, you know, that, that uh, go around it, uh, you're wrong. You know, that church is bigger than that. And uh, it's good to fellowship together and uh, just realize our connection in Christ and, uh, and that the church is a, a universal entity for all that are in Christ. So it's good to be with you this morning. I'd like you to open with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, I think, is often neglected. It's maybe a book that people find a little confusing. Um, we'll be taking a look at just a very small portion of the book of Hebrews, just three verses this morning. So if you're finding the book of Hebrews, it's towards the end of the New Testament. Uh, and we're going to be looking at chapter 4, Hebrews 4, and we'll be reading verses 14 through 16, just three verses there. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And you can follow along as I read. It says, Since then, we have a great high priest. Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we know this is your holy, inerrant, and inspired word, and that it is powerful, and it is sharp, and it reveals the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that it accomplishes your will. We ask that you would accomplish your will in us here today through the illumination of your word. Would you speak to each of us as these words are spoken in order to explain its meaning? Would you help us to understand its meaning and be transformed by its power? We ask you in Christ's name. Amen. So I have a it, kind of a random question, I suppose, to ask you this morning. Maybe it'll make sense in a minute or two. But the question is this. Are there any jazz fans here this morning? Wow, lots, actually. More than I thought. And, okay, I'm talking about jazz music, not Utah jazz. So maybe if a few hands go down, I don't know. Yeah, jazz music. You know, Iowa, maybe not uh, the hub of jazz aficionados in the world. I'm actually a graduate from UNI, and I studied uh, jazz guitar at UNI. I had a minor in jazz studies. And for a while, I even made a living as a jazz guitar in, in this area. Um, seemed like a good idea at a time. I tried to make a living at it. Um, there's not really that great a demand for jazz guitar players in small-town Iowa, <laughs> come to find out. 
uh, the music is kind of complex. It's an, an acquired taste, right? But jazz music does have its superstars, you know? They're not as well known, but there are some superstars. If you're a jazz aficionado, you, you would be able to name a few names. There was a guy back in the early 90s, and uh, his name was Branford Marsalis. And he was just, he still is one of my favorite jazz musicians. He's a jazz saxophone player. Um, but he kind of crossed over into popular culture. And so he kind of hit it big for a jazz guy, okay? And he became a band leader for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, okay? Later he was replaced, and um, I don't know, maybe this is a pretty young crowd. The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, that was before Jimmy Fallon, before Conan <laughs> O'Brien, okay? Um, not so far back as Johnny Carson, but... <laughs> By the way, do you know the difference between a rock guitar player and a jazz guitar player? The difference is that a rock guitar player th plays three chords for a thousand people. Jazz guitar player plays a thousand chords for three people. Yeah. No, but in the early 90s, it was a fun time. Uh, I was getting to know who, a woman who would become my wife, Sarah, who's sitting over here with my family. And uh, we were excited. We were going to go to a concert, and it was Branford Marcellus. It was down at the Civic Center in Des Moines. It was a beautiful night, and uh, we enjoyed a wonderful concert. Um, it, it is a complex kind of art form, and um, the band he had, it was a small trio, and they began playing, and I don't think they stopped playing for two hours. They just played all the way through. You had to be, pay attention to even know if they'd changed from one piece of music to the next. But we had the exciting honor of meeting Branford after the show. And, um, but looking back, more memorable than even meeting him or the concert itself was what happened in the line as we were waiting to go to the green room to shake the band's hand. Uh, Sarah was standing next to me in the line as we're kind of inching our way forward, she just seemed to be getting a little more anxious, a little more agitated about meeting this big deal, okay? And, uh, I mean, we'd seen him on TV at that point. It was, it was exciting. And, but she became to get nervous about it. She said things like, I can't believe we're meeting the Branford Marsalis. I can't believe we're going to be talking. What if we say something stupid? I mean, we're from small-town Iowa, and, and uh, he's from kind of the big city. Uh, what if we look silly? And so she was getting more agitated. And in my insecurity as a jazz musician, it began, began to needle at my heart a bit. And uh, I reacted the opposite way. I became kind of cool to the idea. In fact, I said something, guys, don't do this. You know, very uh, unfeeling and disrespectful. It's like, well, he's just a guy. What's the big deal? You know, well, it was a big deal. Why would we come to Des Moines if it wasn't a big deal? And meet him. Um, we, we got a signed poster. I think I threw it away later because it just reminded me of what an idiot I was that night. And I just remember waiting in that line and just the difference in our reaction of coming into the presence of what we thought was greatness. Okay? So this is us reacting differently. And, and both in our own ways, in ways that were not good, to greatness. Isn't that interesting how people react differently? Some people are 
tempted to be nervous and anxious and almost want to avoid it. And others are, like me, tempted to downplay it and just so that they'll feel better about yourself or not feel as bad about yourself, to um, maybe think less of the greatness of something or someone. The devil would, I would guess, want nothing more than for us to believe this false dilemma about God. And, uh, you know, that we would need to choose between one of those options, one of those unhealthy and, and um, options that are not good, either diminishing God's greatness or avoiding God. Well, we want to look at God's Word this morning, and we want to trust God's Word over our fickle hearts. We're going to unpack these verses a little bit to resolve this dilemma. But I want to give you an idea up front, just so you know the roadmap ahead of what we're going to look at. We're going to look at three things. One thing is that we're going to look at what is true in these verses, okay? So the first thing is what is true. We're also going to look at what is not true. What is not true in these verses? And the third thing, what do we need to do? Okay, what is true? What is not true? And then having been informed by God's word, what do we need to do in light of it? So what is true in this passage? We're going to start looking at the Bible. Uh, But we kind of need a context. You know, I did some intense scholarly academic study of Hebrews, and you know what I discovered? It's written to Hebrews. That's free, no charge. Uh, It would have took you maybe a while to figure that out. But it's written to Hebrews. You know, Hebrews are Jews, okay? So it's written to the Jewish people in a Jewish culture. They maybe understand things about priesthood and and what we're reading in these verses that we don't understand automatically. I invite you to turn to a very important passage. This is Exodus. If you want to keep your finger in Hebrews 4, that's what I'm doing. You can turn to Exodus, second book of the Bible, in chapter 19. The question is maybe, what is true? And what would the Jewish people uh, think about being in the presence of God's greatness? What would be the context that they would be thinking in? This is Hebrews 19. All right, it's a... It's an account of Moses um, presenting the people, bringing them into the presence of God. Just the next chapter, he'll receive the Ten Commandments. But in chapter 19, and starting in verse 17, I'm going to read. We're joining Moses here at Mount Sinai. And the people are going to come into God's presence and this is the context of what that greatness looks like. This is Exodus nineteen seventeen through 21. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. 
the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. What do you think of when you picture the presence of God? It's a fair question. You're going to go into a series on prayer. What does it seem like you picture in your mind? Do you picture a kindly old man, kind of like popular culture would picture? Maybe you picture Morgan Freeman. I think he's played God in some movies or something. Listen, in all seriousness, the book of Hebrews would agree with Exodus. In chapter 12, verse 29, God, it says our God is a consuming fire. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says God dwells in unapproachable light. Apparently, the blinding light of an intense fire, like that kind of fire uh, found at the heart of a kiln, It's dangerous to be in the presence of God. There's a tremendous potential for destruction, a critical mass of holiness that at any moment threatens to break out against anyone or anything that would approach uninvited. Feeling confident yet to approach God? God is holy, His glory is heavy. A thick, explosive cloud of storm and smoke. That's the presence of God. His presence is a terrifying, fiery, elementally unstable cataclysm when it comes into contact with this fallen world. And look back, just one verse before our chosen verses this morning in in, uh, chapter 4 of Hebrews. Verse 13 You see, you can't hide from his presence. Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's greatness is a greatness that we cannot avoid. We must give an account before him. So if you're with me, remember we're looking at what is true. We'll be looking at what is not true, and we'll be looking at what we need to do. And I promise there's more to this message than stories and fire and brimstone. But we can't pass over this truth about God. We must not find our confidence before God by trying to tame Him or dumb Him down or by thinking of our relationship with Him in any way that's inconsistent with Scripture. But there's good news coming. I hope you're ready for it. Everything so far has just kind of been an attempt uh, to step into the shoes of this original Jewish audience. So we can faithfully read verses 14 through 16. But look how 14 begins. It says, since then, or maybe your translation might say, therefore, since. So since then, God is great, transcendently great. His greatness greater than even our best mental conceptions of him. Since then, it says, verse 14, 
we have a great high priest. Priesthood is a rich biblical theme. It'd take probably a college semester to really study it out. But in short, it means it's a prescribed uh, way by which people can have access to God. Verse 14 is wonderful news for us. We do not merely have a priest. We don't merely have a high priest. We have a great high priest. One distinct, distinct role, if you looked at the Old Testament in detail, of the high priest would be to enter into the innermost chamber of the tabernacle. This was a multi-chambered tent that Moses was commanded to construct as God's ordained dwelling place in the midst of his chosen people. But even the high priest entered into this most holy place very cautiously. In fact, Jewish tradition says that uh, they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle or his waist. This is um, the tradition, and uh, we have no reason to doubt, doubt that it was true. Because if the priest would have done something not in accordance with uh, revealed God's revealed will in that innermost chamber, he would be struck dead and nobody could go in to retrieve him, so they'd pull him out with a rope. That was one of the functions of the high priest, that yearly, on the Day of the Atonement, the priest would enter into the holy place. But Hebrews 4.14, do you see it? It says, we have a great high priest. That's the only place in all of Scripture that that phrase is used. High priest is used again and again of successive high priests in the history of Israel. But nowhere is it said there's a great high priest. And a high priest, you read on, that says who has passed through the heavens. The high priest, during the time of the Jewish tabernacle and later the temple, would pass from one successive chamber or courtyard to the next to the innermost chamber, the most holy place. Our great high priest has passed through the successive regions of heaven, our atmosphere, the, the uh, outer space, the universe, and even beyond that into where the place it says in Second Corinthians that God dwells. So this is what is true. Our great high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. And, that's, and that is the great news of the gospel. That we have this wonderful resource for the faithful to think upon what is true. You know, it's interesting, I, in studying for this, spent several hours just on one word. And it's there at the end of verse 14. You ever do that? Just mine for gold in your Bible study and you get stuck on one word. It's kind of delightful that you uh, see it in its full dimensions. Well, we're looking at what is true and at the end of verse 14, a specific kind of truth formula, you might say, is in view. It's called a confession or maybe your uh, translation might say profession, which even in and of itself gives an idea of the breadth of meaning of this word. I was intrigued by this word, and um, 
the reason was because the kind of context I usually think of for confession would be um, you're admitting to some guilt or wrongdoing, right? Um, probably would be the first thing we think of. Now, in every context I can think of, it's true that confession is um, involves truth being told or uncovered. That's fair enough. And we are looking at still what is true here in this passage. But I would typically, like I said, relate it to wrongdoing or guilt. The Bible does tell us to confess our sins to one another. That's a confession. Uh, investigators today that investigate crimes would be uh, wanting, their hope would be that the criminal would confess to his wrongdoing. But here the confession is referring to a, let's say, a content-rich statement of belief, not an admission of guilt. We need to understand what we're holding on to here. Jesus is Lord is a common confession for Christians. The writer of Hebrews here is highlighting a powerful resource for the Christian to confess something is to state it to be true with finality. It is to have, as it were, on, on record, a statement of our belief. So God's word here in Hebrews is calling us to recall our confession. That is, Jesus is Lord, that he died and rose again, that he ascended into heaven, that he is now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, mediating a new covenant, interceding on behalf of the repentant Sinner, this is the confession of every true Christian. Holding fast to this confession means that we must continually be reflecting on its truth, proclaiming it again to ourselves and to one another in our private thoughts and in our fellowship, and also not being ashamed of it before the world. My wife has a favorite verse. It's one of her favorite verses. It's Philippians 4, 8. You know this one? Um, I don't know it by heart. She could probably state it. But she often just says the beginning and end. Whatever is true. It also goes lovely, pure. But whatever is true, think on that, she'll tell me, as a reminder. It can have an edifying effect in the life of the individual believer and in the life of the church. But in, in addition to the edifying effect of a private or intimate confession like that, We should have in mind here, in in verse 14, the evangelistic effect of public confession, especially in view here, is resisting the temptation to deny our confession during times of persecution. Persecution is a word also that maybe is a little unfamiliar to us in our daily lives. It's worth pausing here. It's worth pausing and asking if you ever find yourself persecuted for your confession. Is your life conspicuous enough in the world that the confession of your faith would ever emerge as a result of persecution? I honestly feel convicted of this personally. I'm good at being nice to people. I'm a pretty nice guy. I like to be nice. I could be nice to people all day long. They might never confront me about my faith. Maybe I should stop just being nice to people. I shouldn't, shouldn't I also be assertively challenging them with what is true? If God really is this 
fiery tornado of holy potential to destruction that he says he is, and that no one can stand before him and live without the priestly mediation of Jesus Christ, how nice is it to shake their hands and bid them good day while they may not be aware of their peril? Shouldn't we be making what is true plain enough to the world that we may very well be faced with persecution? What might you have to change in your life so that that would be true? Well, I, I need to confess something to you, even now. Uh, every time I've preached so far in my life, I've spent at least half of the sermon on the first verse. And uh, that's the case here. It's probably just an inadequacy of mine, but it's probably not all bad. Um, there is some richness in this. These truths do move my soul and convict me, as I've said. But for what it's worth, we're closer to the end than you think. And we are moving on to verse 15. Okay? So, we've been looking at what is true. Now here, quickly, we'll look at what is not true. Verse 15 says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what is not true? If we struggle to approach God in a way at the same time, to to at the same time recognize His greatness, but also rest in His graciousness, it's not true that Jesus does not sympathize with our weaknesses. It's not true that Jesus was not tempted as we are. I love a good double negative. Last time I used a good double negative, we were uh, speaking as an elder team at Candeo, and uh, it was an exciting... I share this story because it was so exciting. It was about church bylaws. I'm sure that's something that excites all of you. And uh, something necessary to do, but it's tedious. And one of the other guys just almost apologetically asked if I'd be willing to do the editing. And uh, maybe bring the bylaws more into accordance with the congregational practice and correct some typos. My answer, I don't really want to. But I can't not do it. See, I'm just the type of person that inattention to detail really bothers me. It's almost an obsession rather than a desire. I can't not do that. It could have said I can do that, but it doesn't really say the same thing. Verse 15 has that double negative. It's really kind of delightful to see that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. That's what is not true. When I initially began interacting with Pastor Aaron on this message. This is kind of the main thing that emerged. God in his true greatness is unapproachable. We, we know that on some le- level, intuitively, we, and we tend to either downplay it, treat him like our buddy or a, a big guy in the sky or something like that. People can do that. 
so that we can approach him on our own terms or maybe we simply avoid him. I've done that because it's just too intimidating to come before God. But God has revealed to us through his own son that we have a great high priest who's paved a two-way street to approach God. Jesus ascended into heaven. It says he passed through the heavens in glory. After his resurrection, he provided all who believe in him direct access to God. He also condescended, didn't he? He took on humility, um, took on human form. He suffered and was tempted in every way that we have been. And it's worth reflecting on that for a moment. It, it can be confusing to think about this. How can Jesus, being perfect, really been tempted to sin? This is an age-old uh, argument or discussion. It's been asked for centuries. If Jesus was sinless, how could he have struggled with sin? Somehow people think that might negate this aspect of temptation in his life, but actually the opposite is true. Think about this with me, and, and uh, I'll read a quote, a great quote from C.S. Lewis on this. This is on Jesus and on his sympathy for our weaknesses and the fact that he was tempted. It says, the silly idea currently that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it means to have been what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means. Perhaps it's not Jesus who can't sympathize with us, but us who can't sympathize with Jesus. Consider our great high priest who willingly subjected himself to weakness and temptation and did so to the full, but did not stop there. You see, our great high priest himself, being the high priest, was also the sacrifice that the priest offers. Think about it. Not only did Jesus come to know the full, what, uh, to the full what temptation means, but he also came to know to the full on the cross what the wrath of God poured out on every failure to resist temptation means. Could it be that Jesus experienced the full depth of regret and shame and guilt as part of becoming sin on the cross for us so that we might become the righteousness of God? It's worth considering, and I'll go this far. We, um, whatever his experience on the cross was, he felt the consequences of sin in a way that we never will as believers. 
So what is not true about those for whom Jesus is both great high priest and the perfect atoning sacrifice? It's not true that we must atone for our own sins or escape our own weaknesses by ourselves. So verse 14, what is true? Verse 15, what is not true? Verse 16, to keep it simple, what do we need to do? We need to draw near the throne of grace. I'm excited for you in these next few weeks as uh, you begin a series on dangerous prayers. Is that it? Um, exciting to draw near the throne of grace. We can't not do it, can we? If we know what is true and if we know what is not true, we can't not draw near the throne of grace. If I remember... Um, correctly, beginning that series will be next week, right? So next year, in a sense. But this, this passage, as we close, this passage ends with this, time, this sense of, of a proper time. You see that at the end of verse 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, or some of your translations might say, at the proper time. What is the proper time? I know Sarah and I have received grace from God. It seems like just-in-time delivery. You know, you're, you're in prayer and you um, don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, and it seems like God is gracious just when he needs to be. And we grow in that way, but I wouldn't want to wait till the crisis comes to approach the throne of grace. Hebrews again and again speaks of today being the day that we respond. Um, Chapter 3, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confession firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your your hearts. I'd say to you, Christian brother and sister, before the wave breaks over the ship, hold fast to your confession. Sailors used to have, I don't know if you've seen this in Pirates, of, I think it's in Pirates of the Caribbean. Sailors, hand hand on his knuckles, says, hold fast. And um, it's from this passage. But it's hold fast in the, that storm. But it's too late when the, wind, when the wind and the waves hit. You hold fast to your confession today as those times draw near. But what about those who might be here with us that are spiritually disconnected from God. Um, Jesus is not yet your high priest. You haven't trusted in him. This time is even more urgent for you, friend. Today might be your last day. I've been trying to hold it together. I've been in an emotional uh, tender place. My dad, we just on Christmas Eve admitted him to the hospital. And he'll
probably stay there. Um, and it was an unexpected thing for the whole family. You don't know if this is your last day. If this, there's anyone here that hasn't placed their trust in Christ. Today is the day. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to Ed. I've talked to one of these uh, brothers or sisters here today. And just ask the questions that need to be asked. They're good questions. But don't leave today without having done that. I would encourage you. Let's pray. Father, we are in need of knowing what is true. Our minds will lie to us. The world will lie to us. The devil, uh, father of lies, will lie to us. And we are sometimes prone to believe the lies. We just ask that you would uh, continually correct us by your word that we would believe what is true we would even know what is not true and um, that you would guide us that way and our response would be that we would draw near the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need might that be a first step for many here today or a recommitment for many here today that they would live a life of prayerfully Uh, living in your presence, approaching the throne of grace through the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.